0: Good morning. You guys can find your seats. And uh, I, like you, am very excited for Carl, who's going to be going on that missions trip. Please remember to continue to pray for Carl and his family. Uh, It's exciting to see that missions trips are starting to happen again. As you know, Pastor Joe is leading a team to Appalachia, I guess, within the next week or so, and uh, it's nice to see those trips begin to happen. I know that right now uh, the media, uh, and let's, let's face it, it's the devil's media, uh, wouldn't like it if we started going back on missions trips or fellowshipping or going to church or interacting we, with each other in a loving way. So be prepared to be scared. That's my new phrase. Be prepared to be scared. Anytime God is going to be working, the media is going to come out against you and try to scare you back into your hole. We will not go quietly into the dark of night. There's no going back. We're going forward to preach the gospel in all the earth. Amen. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we know... That you have called us to go forward and to preach. To preach your gospel in places that might even be called dangerous. Places like Lebanon, other places throughout the world. And the media would tell us that everywhere is dangerous. Our local Costco is dangerous. But we will not be intimidated because we know why we're here. Lord, keep us safe, keep us healthy. We've been praying that our whole lives, and you always have. So don't allow, Lord, the media and the narrative to get inside our heads. There's always been sickness in this world, there's always been death. But you have always been the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer of all mankind. So as we study your word today in the book of Acts, we ask that you would empower us, give us courage and boldness, make us brave and courageous, because in these dark days, we need to be all of those things that we might be used by you for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we are in the book of Acts, in chapter 9, where we left off last week. And last week, we looked at the conversion of Paul. Well, he's still called Saul at this point, but we know Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle, And as we consider his conversion and the effect that it had upon both him and the people around him, we recognize that when God calls you to preach the gospel as an apostle, now by the way, the word apostle means one who's sent, so the closest thing we would have to an apostle today is really a Christian, because we've all been sent into this world, and if you're a missionary, even more so. An evangelist, just as much so. A minister of the gospel is in many ways an apostle. In the first century, the apostles were specific individuals. Today, we are all called to go into all the earth. We're to make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. That is why we're here. And it's why we're here this morning. So, Saul... Saul, called to be an apostle, humbled on the road to Damascus, now finds himself knowing Jesus Christ, having been baptized with the Holy Spirit, after having been humbled, and even water baptized. He spent three days without eating or drinking. He's regained his strength. What is the first thing that this man does? It amazes me how quickly this man got the memo on what Christians are supposed to do. Remember, he was hunting them down and throwing them into prison. He was, he was the, the quote-unquote secret agent hunting them down and, and breaking into people's homes. He was the one that was following them, watching them, knowing how they acted and what they did. He knew how to recognize a Christian from afar. And now he is one. And we read in verses 19, latter part of verse 19 verse, through verse 22 in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues. That Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Proving that Jesus is the Christ. I love that. What did it take him? Three days? Maybe a day and a half? Before he was in the synagogue doing the very thing that Christians are called to do. Now, now here's the thing that's unique about Paul is that he was a Pharisee and well-versed in the scriptures. So when the light bulb went on and he finally admitted the truth that I think he already knew, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Redeemer of all mankind, once he, he, he acknowledged that truth in humility and submitted his heart to God, the words and the thoughts and the concepts that are very difficult for some were right there at the tip of his tongue. He needed only go out and share it, so did he go to a Bible college? No. Did he take a six-week class on what it means to be a Christian before he went out and started sharing his faith? No. It says right there that he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. That's, that's giving us the whole time period. He, he spent a little while with them, and it says, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus isn't the Son of God. This is amazing to me. There's nothing quite like the conversion of Saul of Tarsus to Paul the Apostle. Saul was staying with Jesus' disciples. Just stop a moment and think about that. The same people that he had come to the city to arrest, he's staying with them. Imagine you have a guest room. And the enemy of God's people has now become one of God's people. And now he's staying with you. There must have been some degree of apprehension. And yet, there has been this miraculous experience that Saul has had. And of course, he was blinded for three days. Now, the scales have fallen from his eyes. He is a completely different person. That much is obvious. But he's in Damascus. He's no longer in Jerusalem. He's outside of the city. Uh, He's he's in a place, I think we said it was about 140 miles away. He's in a place where, you know, it's not his hometown. He's in a foreign place. He's in what is today Damascus, Syria. And as he's there to do the wrong thing, he's apprehended on the way. And now he's doing the very right thing, the thing that God had called him to do. He began to preach in the synagogues, and he had tremendous influence among the Jews. Now, the Pharisees, you may not know this, but the Sadducees were in control of the temple, the temple mount, the sacrifices, very political establishment, but the Pharisees, over the last 400 years, had established this thing they called the synagogue. Synagogues did not exist until the Pharisees came along and established synagogues. The purpose of the synagogue was to teach people the word of God outside of Jerusalem, primarily. It was to teach people the word of God. The synagogue was established as a place of teaching because the temple had been destroyed. And then the temple was rebuilt, but still the synagogue continued. And having been established by the Pharisees, the Pharisees taught in the synagogue. So to be a Pharisee meant you immediately had carte blanche. You could walk into any synagogue as a Pharisee, and you were recognized, you had all the credentials you needed. So that's what Saul did. Of course, he was famous. He had been thoroughly trained in the law under Gamaliel beginning at the age of 14. He, he was a well-read, well-educated man, and everyone knew who he was. And they're shocked because he was a very different person just a few days earlier. So he's a Pharisee who also had the support of the Sadducees as well as his own sect. How many people do you know in the news today that have the support of both parties? Very few. This man did. Now, the Jews, they're astonished that Saul was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I kind of am as well. I, I can't believe it happened so quickly for this man. And yet I can remember my own testimony. And I can remember how I went from being very opposed to God and his word and the gospel to studying and teaching God's word and preaching the gospel. Because when you realize the truth and you're humbled by God... You recognize there's no room for pride. It's better to just admit your mistake and move on. That's what Saul did. And he was a proud man. This must have been incredibly difficult. And certainly, the experience that he had on the road to Damascus is what changed him or gave him the opportunity to change. I suppose he didn't have to submit to God. But as we talked about last week, the Lord made it pretty difficult for him not to submit. So he had become the defender of Judaism the destroyer of the early church and now as he was looking to arrest Jews who had become disciples of Jesus and bring them to Jerusalem he's in Damascus having been arrested if you will by the Lord having been taken into custody by the Lord himself Saul was enabled by the Holy Spirit i like this word to prove to prove To prove to the Jews in Damascus that Jesus is is the Messiah. Now, he did not have a New Testament. None of the New Testament at this point was even written. This is very early on in the early church. Probably about 37 AD. Just five to six years before or after, excuse me, after Christ's death and resurrection. So this is very early on. So what Bible is, is Saul using? He's using the Old Testament which he's well-versed in, educated in, and he's preaching the gospel, but not just preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God, proving from the word of God that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. We'll see all mankind as well later on in the book of Acts. It says that he grew more powerful. That is, he grew in his spiritual gifts the more he exercised them. You know what I've learned about spiritual gifts or any gift for that matter, that is any talent or ability? God may give you an ability, a talent, He may give you a spiritual gift, but it grows the more you use it. So you might have a gift to teach God's Word. I hope that 20 years from now, you're growing in that gift, but you've got to exercise it if you're going to grow in it, right? Like physical ability, athletic ability, all of those things, you grow in them. You may have a basic gift, but Or ability, but you have to exercise it if you're going to grow in it. There are a lot of Christians that have wonderful gifts that are not exercising them. And you would hope that over 20, 30, 40 years you'd grow more powerful. Paul was so prepared for this ministry that God called him to, almost immediately he became very proficient at sharing the gospel and proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Saul was a unique individual and his circumstances being what they were. He was an an ordained vessel God had chosen, we saw this last week, to bring the gospel not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. He's in a Gentile city, but he's still preaching to the Jews at this point. I like the fact that we're told he baffled the Jews by showing them the truth of the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. The word baffled implies that people looked at what Saul was saying and said, he's right. How didn't we see this? They were baffled, not by what he was saying, but by the fact that they had never seen it before. You know, there are people like that. They read the scripture and nobody ever told me this. I've been going to church my whole life. I never n- knew you needed to be born again. Well, let's look at John's Gospel, chapter 3. Oh, you must be born again. Oh, really? I remember distinctly the first time I realized that being born again meant becoming a Christian. Because before that, I was told, or it was implied in church, that the born-agains, like a motorcycle club or something, the (laughs) born-agains. The born-agains were weird, strange, and dangerous. They might be Christians, but they're a little crazy. So it was better to stay on the side of the Christians that don't really believe you need to be born again. Then I found out you must be born again. From the scripture. And I realized that I needed to become one of them. One of those born-agains. Get one of those leather vests, you know, born-agains. So, so here's the thing, I, and I'm being silly, but, but, but I realized something. To be born again is to be a Christian. To be born again into the fellowship of believers as a child of God means you acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ. It's the thing that, that Paul was teaching. that died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and promised to come again to judge the living and the dead. But we have to acknowledge our sin and repent of our sin. And as we do that, as we receive him, as we believe on his name, we're told according to John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 12, we are called the children of God, the sons and daughters of God. Well, that's what... Saul was now telling people, and the Jews were baffled. They couldn't believe it. Why? What? Imagine you walk in, oh, there's Saul. That's it. Everyone's going to jail. And, and now he starts to preach the gospel. It must have been surreal for those Jews that knew this man. But then, of course, and I think you'll see this, in our world today, there are two kinds of people in terms of how they respond to the gospel, those that accept it and those that reject it. But within those that reject it, there are those that passively reject it. That is, they just kind of blow you off. They don't really want to hear it. Then there's a demonically inspired reaction of people who want to kill you because you preach the gospel. Now, I want you to stop and think about how twisted you have to be to want to kill someone you disagree with. Just take a moment, breathe that in. It's one thing to disagree with somebody. Oh, I disagree with you. Oh, okay, that's fine. We can disagree. But what is it that causes a person to go from disagreeing to, you know, I disagree with that guy and I hate him so much that I want to kill him. In fact, let's kill him. Does anyone see the fingerprints of Satan on that? Can you not see that the people who actually say things like, oh, we want to kill all white people or we want to kill all black people? Or we want to kill all people. Or we want to kill conservatives or Republicans or Democrats or progressives or socialists. Do you realize that anybody that says things like that is really only a puppet? Because behind that puppet, the one holding the strings or the one moving its mouth is Satan himself. No rational, sane person rejects the gospel and then wants to kill the person that's preaching it unless they're demonically inspired. Can we say that? I'm not saying they're possessed. They might be, but they're definitely demonically inspired. Because listen, I may disagree with you, but for me to go from disagreeing to wanting to kill you requires something more than me just disagreeing with you. I mean, there may be a flash moment where I really don't like you, but I'm going to get together and and, and premeditate murder? To shut you up because I don't like what you're saying? Why should I even care what you're saying if I don't believe it? You ever stop to think about that? Why is it so offensive to people to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? There are a lot of things you can say. There are a lot of beliefs and religions. But why is it that the response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is either people sort of accept it, obviously, or reject it passively or want to kill you? Because those people that want to kill you are the people that know it's true, like Paul, like Saul. Now, here's what we read in verses 23 through 25. After many days, that gives us an idea that that Saul was there for a long time and had no intention of leaving. After many days had gone by, the, the Jews, now of course not all the Jews, Saul was a Jew, right? There were many following him and brothers and sisters in Christ, but the Jews, that is the Jews that we sort of described as being demonically inspired, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. He had to escape with his life, The Jews conspired to kill Saul at the city gates. That was the plan. As he's leaving the city, we'll kill him. And they wouldn't want to try to do it within the city. First of all, that might cause a riot. Uh, They may be arrested. Uh, They didn't want to cause... They want to wait till he got outside the city, at the city gate, and take him out outside the jurisdiction of the city when he wasn't surrounded by so many people. So apparently Saul at some point had planned to leave the city, maybe to go back to Jerusalem. Who knows? But here's what we do know. They were waiting for him. They were lying in wait, and he found out about it. So the church had good intel. So what Saul did is he stayed in Damascus preaching the gospel for many days, and because he stayed there a little longer than they would have liked, they finally decided the only way to silence this guy, deplatform this guy, shut this guy down, is to kill him. And we should expect nothing less from our enemies who are demonically inspired. Well, Saul learned of their plan, but he's unable to safely leave the city without being noticed. There's only that city gate and it's guarded. You can't quietly sneak out of the city. <clears throat> so what Saul's followers did is they helped him to escape at night when most people are asleep by lowering him over the city wall. You'll remember in the, right before the Battle of Jericho that something similar happened for the spies. In the house of Rahab. Well, he got out. But it mentions Saul's followers. Now, what does that mean? Because there's only followers of Christ. Really, it's just his followers would have included Jesus' disciples who were already living in this city, and they were called Saul's followers because they supported him. You might say Saul's supporters. All right. They would have also included those Jews who had become disciples through his preaching and those that were already Christians or already followers of Jesus. So Saul left the city in a basket. Interesting, pretty humbling. He kind of came in being led by the hand and blinded for three days. He leaves in a basket on the outside of the wall. So not very glamorous ministry, lots of persecution. We know from Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 17 that what happened next, which isn't mentioned here, is that Saul spent several years in Arabia. And then he later returned to Damascus. So he got out of Damascus to allow things to cool down and we're not really told much about what happened during those three years, but he left his former life as a Pharisee to live in obscurity, almost like a monk in the desert. He left his fellow disciples, his recent followers, to live in isolation and he left preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to do what? In order to be alone but not really alone, alone with Jesus Christ. Now, why would that have been necessary? I thought a lot about this. I mean, Saul was hitting it hard. He, he gets saved and he's out there preaching in the synagogues and he must have been so bold, he must have been so effective in proving that Jesus is the Christ that the reaction that he received in Damascus, imagine that's Damascus, would have been 10,000 times worse in Jerusalem. Now, did did the Lord take him into the desert to tell him to calm it down? No, no, I doubt that. But I think what Saul needed after studying for his entire life, or most of his life, studying the Torah, studying the scriptures as a Jew, he needed to spend time with Jesus. Now, remember the, the disciples, the apostles? They spent a little over three years with Jesus. And still, they didn't get it right a lot of the time. They made mistakes. I'm sure Saul made his fair share of mistakes early on. In fact, he seems to indicate that in his writings. So here it is, about 37 AD, and, and, and Saul is a, is a new believer. He's out there. He's preaching in Damascus. I know, I'm sure, he wants to go to Jerusalem. He eventually does. But we have to believe that the Lord said, Saul... Like he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, I want you to go into Arabia. Remember, Philip was called into the desert, called away from a very successful and wonderful ministry. But now Saul goes into the desert of Arabia. That's what Arabia is, a desert, pretty much. And he disappears. And during this time, we're not really told, but I have to believe that he grew so close to Jesus because what Saul had was the truth. What he didn't have was, was the experience of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I think a new believer can preach the gospel. In fact, I think they should preach the gospel. But Saul would have been like a supernova and just exploded on the scene. And and I don't think he would have had the longevity in ministry to be able to go 30 years of persecution and difficulty if he didn't take the time to establish himself, to be grounded and rooted in Christ. So there's two things believers should be doing, especially early on. One is preaching the gospel, but two is growing in the grace and the knowledge of their Savior, Jesus Christ. I've seen people make this mistake. They'll say, well, I'm called to preach the gospel. And they go out, they don't join a church. They don't really spend time alone with Jesus. They don't worship. They don't pray. They just preach. And that is a recipe for disaster. Because what will happen is you are unreachable and unteachable because you're not in the place where God can work in your heart. It's a, it's a balancing act. You and I, we have to stay in touch with Jesus and have a relationship with him. And out of that relationship, we preach the gospel to the unsaved, to the world. But you know what I found? I really need more than anything else to be close to Jesus. And if you grow close to him, the inevitable response to growing close to him is this. You will preach the gospel to unbelievers. You will teach the word of God in the world. So it's not to say that Saul had it backwards. It's just that I imagine that he just desperately needed to spend time with Jesus. He had been spending time with God's people. He had been preaching the truth of the gospel. And now they want to kill him. That's not surprising. Although it's it's interesting to think this early on, most of the apostles had not experienced this level of persecution outside of Jerusalem. So I, I, I don't know exactly why, but I can imagine that, For Saul to spend three years with Jesus alone has a lot to do with why he became so effective as an apostle. So let's move on. Here he is living in isolation and in obscurity, spending time with Jesus. And then we know from the New Testament writings of Paul, or Saul at this time, And from what it says here in the book of Acts, in verses 26 through 25, it says, when he came to Jerusalem, so it doesn't really tell us what happened in between. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. Now, it's been three years at least, but we read, but they were all afraid of him. Now, imagine what they were thinking. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Do you blame them? I mean, if he wanted to infiltrate the church, that's all he had to do. Let's pretend. But Barnabas, Barnabas, Barnabas took him in and brought him to the apostles and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Are you going to preach fearlessly in these dark days? Can I hear an amen? Amen. What does fearlessly mean? Fearlessly means you're not going to let the media scare you into silence. Fearlessly means you don't care whether people want to kill you for preaching the truth. Fearlessly means, oh, well, if I get sick, I get sick. You know, it's amazing to me, Christians. It's amazing to me that over the last 30 years, 35 years of my life, anytime God called me forward onto the mission field, there was always almost a guarantee that I was going to get either a little sick or very sick. Did it stop me? No, because God had called me. I'm not telling anyone here to be reckless. We're not reckless. But I know that many Christians in this church and in other churches are allowing their fear of something they've been told is is worse than it is. I want to remind you that the stats, and and I'm not being, listen, I'm not being insensitive to the fact that when you look at a statistic, there is a 0.4% of people who get very sick. I'm not saying that's not true, but it's 0.4%. 99.6% of the people who get the COVID virus have the flu. Have you ever had the flu? But I might be one of the 0.4%. There's a statistic that might be a little higher of people that get into car accidents. People that catch all sorts of things. Because by the way, tuberculosis is still out there. I don't see anybody worried about that. Here's the problem when you listen to the voice of the media. It's the devil telling you to shut up. Don't be reckless. I'm not saying you should be reckless. And I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad if you're scared. You're scared? I get it. You've been frightened. And maybe you're terrified because you know why? Because there's this much truth to what's being said, and it's just enough to scare you into silence. I just want you to look at that verse. Barnabas said to the apostles, this man preached fearlessly in Damascus. So we pray for Carl and for Joe and the missions team to go out and to preach fearlessly, but we have to do the same. I'm getting a little tired of, of some of what I hear in the news. You know, you only hear what they want you to hear. You don't hear that masks are 1% to 2% effective. If, if at all, you're clinging to your mask, you think they're going to keep you safe. God will keep you safe. You want to wear a mask? Fine. I don't disparage you. Don't tell me I have to do something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Some people like to get vaccinated. Fine, get vaccinated. Don't tell me I have to get vaccinated. We live in a world where we're, we're run by fear. What's going on? Listen, this isn't a political message. And I'm not even talking about the virus. Because when this virus goes away and it will, there'll be another virus. Or there'll be something else that the devil will use to keep you quiet. If you let him. It's time to be brave. It's time to be courageous. It's time to preach fearlessly the name of Jesus. These men literally took their life in their hands and every missionary does when he goes out that door. And you're afraid to go to the Costco. Think about it, brothers. Take a moment, breathe it in. I'm not mocking you. I'm giving you a little tough love. All right? Now, if you want to send me an email or a text later, and will pass you. You're not being sensitive. No, I'm not being sensitive. I'm being truthful. I think we've lost that the ability to be truthful and trying to be so sensitive. Listen, it's okay. I'm not trying to shame anybody. But I am trying to encourage you to do like Saul and preach fearlessly the name of Jesus. Whether there's a virus or a flu or a stomach bug. Listen, you go to El Salvador, you're going to get a stomach bug. I've had it. I know. Yeah. And if you're lucky, you either get it on the plane or when you get home. Because as I talked about last week, the bathrooms are not always something to enjoy. Let's put it that way. Now, I know that some of you right now are thinking Pastor Tim's being too tough. And maybe I am. But I'm not going to let them scare us. I'm not going to let them tell us that we can't do what God has called us to do, that is to worship publicly. And you're welcome to wear a mask. We are going to continue to worship publicly, to sing our praises to the Lord, to reach the world, to fellowship, to pray, to go on mission trips to serve, to teach our children, to love one another, and to do all the things that God's word has told us to do because there is no good reason not to. All right. Funny story. A good friend of Russ and I told us, uh, and you've, you've seen this, people driving in the car with their mask on. And maybe they just forget to take it off. They wear it so often. But he told us a story. He saw a woman driving down the road with a mask on, driving in her car, which isn't so uncommon, except that she was in a convertible. That's what happens when you don't think. Okay, now I'm done. Oh, thank God. So, here's what happens. Saul returns to Jerusalem. And is is three years after he was converted by the Lord Jesus. We know that from Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Saul tried unsuccessfully to join the disciples at the church in Jerusalem. Imagine someone walks in. Oh, I'd like to join the church. No. <laughs> Imagine that. No, you can't. We don't trust this guy. They were all afraid of him. He, he had tried to destroy the church in Jerusalem just a few years earlier, and they refused. These are the apostles, not the b the apostles. These are the guys running the church. And they were afraid. And they don't believe what God has done in the life of Saul. You see, it's possible as Christians to get it wrong. They refused to believe that he really was a disciple given his past, his past persecution of the church. They thought he was just pretending to be a disciple. Join the church, you know, sort of a, an undercover operation, you know, a sting operation, if you will. Go long-term undercover and then eventually destroy the church. That, that's what... your mind can really play tricks on you. and You can believe things that are not true if, if you allow fear to grip you Now, here's what's interesting. A man named Barnabas introduced Saul to the apostles Peter and James and testified to the truth of his conversion. Now, we know who Barnabas is. We talked about him in chapter 5. He was a Levite, that is, of the priestly clan. He lived on the island of Cyprus, off the coast of Israel in the Mediterranean Sea. Actually, his real name was Joseph. But the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. That is, a person that always encourages. He'd sold the field that he owned. He he gave the money to the apostles to provide for the needy. He was filled with the Spirit, we're told. He had received the gift of giving and of encouragement, and he used those gifts. And he also testified to the truth. He testified that Saul had preached fearlessly, fearlessly, fearlessly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. Now... He may have heard Saul preach recently in Damascus, or even three years earlier, because we know, <coughs> Excuse me. after Arabia, after those three years, Saul came back to Damascus and apparently started to preach there again. Maybe Barnabas was there, or he just heard about it. Or he may have known Saul when he was a Pharisee. And could vouch for his testimony. Barnabas was a very wealthy man. The Pharisees were wealthy men. They more than likely traveled in the same circles. So what does Barnabas, the son of encouragement, do? He encourages the apostles to trust God. And you can call me Barnabas today. That's all I'm trying to do. I love you guys. And sometimes you have to say things that are a little shocking and a little hard to hear to snap people out of it so that they understand they can trust God. Now, Saul stayed with Peter, we're told, for about 15 days. He also spent time with James, the Lord's brother. So now he's on the inside track. He's called to be an apostle. He's now meeting with the apostles. But if Barnabas didn't intervene and vouch for him, it never would have happened. Think about it. So Saul, what does he do? Well, what do you think he did? He's been three years in Arabia. Now, he's not only got the message that he had the day he was saved and converted, He has three years of spending time with Jesus. As I said, he more than likely had already preached in Damascus again. Here he is back in Jerusalem, and here's what he did. Not surprisingly, it says, So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Boldly in the name of the Lord. In fact, he talked and debated with Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. That was the response that everyone seemed to have to Paul preaching the gospel. You know, I'm going to say something. If you're truly preaching the gospel with love, with love, I'm not saying Saul didn't have death threats because he wasn't loving. It's because he was truthful and honest. Okay, so here's the thing. How do people react to you sharing the gospel? Because technically, it should be kind of one of those three reactions, right? I mean, they, 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 they should probably, like, receive Christ maybe passively reject you, or unfortunately, maybe actively persecute you. But if everybody likes you, and your preaching of the gospel doesn't make waves in your community and in your family, you might want to stop and ask the question, am I preaching boldly? I don't know. Maybe you're not. Maybe you are. Are you preaching boldly? Because if you do it boldly and fearlessly, you can expect mm, about... I'd say a a, a good percentage of very violent reaction. That's just the way it goes. Anyone who truly boldly preaches the gospel knows this to be true. And then we're surprised when people don't like us or really persecute us. Well, you know, look what happened to Saul. So here's Saul. He's, again, staying with Jesus' disciples, the same people he had tried to persecute in the past. He's He's able to move about freely, it says. Well, of course, he's a Pharisee. He has the ability to, to, he has a passport, he can go anywhere, freely in the city. He had tremendous influence among the Jews. And Saul spoke boldly and debated with a group of people called the Grecian Jews who tried to kill him. Are you surprised? Hey, do you remember the Grecian Jews? Remember, Saul's a Hebraic Jew who grew up in a Grecian city. And there's a synagogue of the freedmen in Jerusalem, which is all the Grecian Jews. These are the same people that had opposed Stephen, more than likely because Stephen was a Grecian Jew and was a member of that synagogue at one time. They had secretly persuaded wicked men to falsely accuse Stephen of blasphemy, and we know what happened. They removed their outer clothing and laid them at Saul's feet as they were stoning Stephen. These are the same thugs that put Stephen to death. What does Saul do? Those guys. They loved Saul before. But now he shows up and he starts to tell them the truth. The people that put Stephen to death, he goes to them. Paul, Saul, you're not really thinking this through. God wouldn't call you to do something like that. Oh, oh, yes, he will. And that's exactly what happened. And, and then what, what happened next is not hard to predict. Look at verse 30. It says, when the brothers, that is the other disciples, learned of this They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. (laughs) Caesarea was a a port city. We'll talk more about it in the future Uh, on the Mediterranean, a little to the north. And uh, he went back home. You need to go home. You need to go home. I don't think he wanted to. But I think they realized if he hung around there, the same thing was going to happen that happened to Stephen. That's pretty clear. Saul didn't care, though. And you might say Saul was reckless. I don't think he was reckless. I actually think he was brave and courageous. And he was able to share the gospel in this way throughout the known world over a period of 30 years. So I really don't think he was reckless. I think he was bold. They clearly, the brothers clearly didn't want Saul to be put to death like Stephen for his boldly preaching the gospel. They also didn't want to experience the persecution, the severe persecution uh, that they had experienced following Stephen's death. That would have only started things up again. So these individuals who meant well said, Saul, you need to leave because things have been okay around here. Now you're back and you know, you're ruffling feathers. You need to tone it down a little bit. I understand why they said that, but I think they were wrong. We'll see later on they were. See, Saul spent several years in Tarsus, but another two years Until later on, I'll give you a little preview. Barnabas reconnected with him in about 42 AD. He's been a Christian now about five years. He wasn't called to minister in Jerusalem, apparently. Saul wasn't. But God used him mightily in Syria and Cyprus and in Turkey. He was considered a blessing by the church in Jerusalem, but even a greater blessing if he stayed away. He was apparently ministering in the province of Cilicia when his friend Barnabas found him. And we'll we'll look at this in the book of Acts. We'll see where this thing goes. Barnabas then brought him to the first Christian church in Antioch to minister there. Now, verse 31, as I asked the worship team to come up. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, that's the known church at that time, enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and it grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Now, that's a great balance, growing in the fear of the Lord. Growing in the fear of the Lord. They had a time of peace. That's a good thing. We don't want war. Peace is a good thing. It's not always a possible thing. But it was at this time possible. The church experienced a time of peace and an end to the Jewish persecution of the last several years. They're just happy the Jews are just happy souls somewhere else. And as a result, the church was strengthened and encouraged in the power and person of the Holy Spirit. And the church continued to grow in numbers. And yet, here's the balance. Are you listening? Here's the balance. Not only did they grow in numbers, they still lived in the fear of the Lord. Here's the problem. Today, many churches grow in numbers. They don't live in the fear of the Lord. In fact, they do what they have to do to get the numbers by not encouraging people to live in the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord means you're living in repentance, according to God's word. You want a big church nowadays? All you need to do is don't preach about sin judgment. Certainly don't offend anyone. You know, and, and what will happen is, if the truth offends you, what will happen is that church will grow. It becomes bloated. And I want to remind you of this as we close. There's growth that's healthy. And then there's cancerous growth. Cancer is the growth. That's not the kind of growth we're talking about. We're talking about a growth that's healthy, of individuals living in fear of the Lord. Lord, Heavenly Father, that's our prayer, that our church, our fellowship, would continue to grow in the fear of the Lord. Yes, grow in numbers, but only if we can grow in the fear of the Lord. And Lord, help us to be bold. We're so encouraged by Carl's testimony and the testimony of Saul in the Bible. We hear you. We know what you're telling us to do. It's a question of whether or not we're going to trust you. And so, Lord, now we come to you. We ask in the name of Jesus that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit anew and afresh. Give us courage, bravery, and boldness to preach the gospel as we ought to. And for those who are thinking about receiving Christ, may they have the boldness and the courage to receive him to receive Him as their Savior, to confess their sins, to repent of their sins, to cry out, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But you have to call in repentance. You have to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. I pray that anyone here today who has yet to do that would take the first step of courage and give their life to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.